All right, this morning we're going to back, go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. We've been studying through 1 Peter, um, and I didn't realize it, but I went back and looked at my notes, and we've been in 1 Peter since March, believe it or not. So I'm hoping we can finish before next March, but we'll do our best. That's in God's hands. But 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be reading starting at verse 8 today through verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. So if you want to follow along, starting at verse 8, Peter says this, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Let's stop and have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at this passage more in depth. Father, thank you again for your word. We know that it is truth because it is from you. It is your words to us. And Lord, the message is important. So even as we study this small passage today, there's lessons that we are to learn. There's admonition that we need to accept. And so I pray that your spirit would open our hearts and minds to be ready to receive it. And not just to hear it, but to be doers of your word, not being deceived. So, Lord, do your work in each one of us. Guide us and teach us. And, Lord, help me to be able to speak boldly your truth. But, Lord, give me your spirit that he may guide me, give me strength, give me wisdom and the words to say so that we are challenged by you today. Lord, do your work. Bless us, we pray, and guide us now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been looking at 1 Peter 2 and 3 over the last several months, and starting at about the middle of chapter 2 and into chapter 3 where we are now, Peter's focus is on giving us admonition about being submissive. And we've looked at several scenarios that he has laid out for us, beginning in chapter 2. He talked about our submission to government, whether they be godly or ungodly our submission to our workplace authorities with the same qualifications and not depending on them being uh, followers of the Lord. And then in chapter 3, he begins another scenario of wives being submissive to their husbands, and he says, in the same way. So it's not about just being submissive to a godly husband, but also to an ungodly husband. And then last week in verse 7, we saw that the the, uh, command for a husband to love and honor his wife and cherish her. The word subject or submit does not appear there, but the idea of submission is still there. And we saw that as a husband loves his wife, he is submissive to her needs, and especially her greatest spiritual needs. And so the idea of submission has permeated all of what we've read in these two chapters so far. And that is the focus here. It's the right attitude with which we are to respond to authorities, but also to each other. And here in verse 8, Peter 
doesn't really shift gears. He starts and he says, finally, it doesn't mean he's done with his letter. He means he's finishing up or summarizing this topic of submission. And he says, finally, he wants us to be submissive, um, uh, be all of you of one mind. In other words, have this mind of submission toward each other. Okay? So it's not about just authority. It really is about submission to those around us. Submission becomes kind of a hallmark of the Christian life. And submission comes out of an attitude of humility. So as we get to verse 8, Peter is summarizing this idea of submission in humility in our responses, period, not just to authority, but but to all people, both to believers and to unbelievers. And remember, believers... As we read this morning in Romans 12, we're supposed to be together. We're supposed to be supporting and encouraging one another, praying for and loving one another. But what about unbelievers, those who don't support and pray and encourage us? How do we respond to them? And Peter says, it's the same idea, respond in submission. And so that's what he gives us starting here in verse 8. In verse 8, he begins with how we respond to other believers And he gives us five virtues or five principles which should rule or govern our submissive response to each other. And he starts in verse 8 with this one. He says, first of all, be ye all of one mind or be in harmony in your thinking. Now, if you look at the Greek word that he uses here, it literally means same think. In other words, we are to think the same way. And you go, well, we're all different people. Everybody has their own opinions and preferences. We're not all supposed to look the same. Well, that's not what Peter's saying. He's saying we're supposed to think the same. And the basis of that is that all of our thinking is to be guided by God's truth. We are not allowed, in in essence, in the Christian life to have our own opinion about how it should be lived. We are not allowed to live by our preferences. That's not what God has called us to. We are to think and then live out of our thinking, completely governed by the truth of God's word. And it's in that same mindset of being governed by God's truth that we find unity. Unity is not just getting along with each other and not having fights. Unity is founded in this word, same think, that we have the same mind. And it's only accomplished when there's a commitment by all involved to treat one another the same according to what the Bible says we should be treating each other as. And so it's the same thinking process. It's the same guidance from the Holy Spirit. It's the same principles of Scripture that are the driving forces of our lives. And if we all have the same Holy Spirit and the same Bible, we're all not going to be doing different things as far as how we treat each other. That will be unity. We will be doing and treating the same, each other the same way. And so Peter starts by saying, you must have the same mind. And again, it's not about that we look the same because God has made us all different. We read in Romans chapter 12 in our responsive reading, we all have different gifts. God has given each of us different abilities, different gifts, different levels of being able to minister, okay? 
But we all have the same spirit. We all have the same truth. And we are all members of one body. And therefore, there is one mind that governs one body. And it's the mind of Christ. That's the one mind that we should all have. And so that becomes the key to unity, and it becomes the attitude of submission, submission to the truth of God. That's the one mind that Peter says begins this process of being able to respond the right way in submission. Now you say, well, how is it submission? Well, number one, it's submission to God as our authority and his word as the authority of our lives. And then number two, using that truth, submission to meeting each other's needs. Just like the husband is to meet his wife's needs, believers are to meet each other's needs. And so the needs of others then become, in essence, our authority about how we treat others. What they need is what we give them. What, we need, what they need is how we respond to them in meeting those needs. So it's all about submission. So let me give you a couple other passages that have this same idea. We already read in Romans chapter 12, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Peter, I'm sorry, Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So Paul, as well as Peter, tells us our thinking should be the same, all based on the truth of God's word. Now, if we have the same spirit, the spirit of God is not going to give us the same verse and say, well, that for you, you're going to practice it this way. For you, you're going to do something different. Okay, that's where divisions come in. And unfortunately, we see that in the denominationalism that has taken over the church in our era because people take their interpretation and it may be different than somebody else's interpretation. And now all of a sudden, we've created divisions within the body of Christ. And we don't agree on the interpretation and the application. And in some senses, that becomes so severe that we won't even have fellowship with those people. Now, obviously, believers can't have true fellowship with unbelievers. But if we are all one body, regardless of the church we go to or the denomination we're a part of or not a part of, we are still the body of Christ. And so the mindset should be the same. The truth should be the same. And therefore, the action should be the same as far as we respond to each other in submission to one another's needs. And that's what Peter's saying here. Start with having one mindset. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this in verses 1 and 2, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill me, ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, one mind. So Peter's not all by himself in admonishing us in this way. This one-mindedness of believers is the standard that God has given us as far as how we treat each other. And then he's going to elaborate on how that plays out in our daily lives in the next four uh, principles that he gives us. So number one, we have this idea of being of the same mind, and that is the mind of submitting to each other in love and meeting each other's needs. Number two is to be compassionate. The next phrase, he says, not just be of one mind, but 
having compassion. Now, in the Greek, the word for compassion is sympathes. You might recognize that because it's the word we get our word sympathy from. It means to share the same feelings or literally to suffer together. Now, remember, Peter is writing all of what he's given us so far in the context of being able to rejoice in suffering and then also to live with each other in suffering and through the trials that God allows in our lives. And so when we think about sympathy, it's not just, oh, well, I feel your pain. It's no, I really feel your pain because we are the same body. Paul talked about this in Corinthians when he says, oh, the, the body is made up of different parts, and you've experienced this in your lives, okay? Some of you notice I have a Band-Aid on my finger this morning, okay? I cut my finger the other day, and it bled for a while, and it hurt. And I put a Band-Aid on it, and I forgot about it for a little while until I banged it again yesterday. And then my whole body reminded me, man, that still hurts, okay? And that's the way it is with the body of Christ. When one of us is suffering, when one of us is grieving, or when one of us is rejoicing... We all suffer, we all grieve, we all rejoice because we're one body. We read this morning in Romans chapter 12, Paul said it this way, Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. And it's not just, oh, I feel bad for you that you're going through this thing. No, it is, wow, this doesn't just affect you, this affects all of us. And so your grief causes grief in me. Your rejoicing causes rejoicing in me. And that's hard because on the rejoicing side, I mean, you might think, well, that, that's not that hard to rejoice with people who are rejoicing. They've received a blessing, and so we can rejoice with them. What if that blessing comes at your expense? What if that blessing comes out of your grief? Then what do you do? What if you are uh, in a sense, not competing, but looking for that blessing, praying for that blessing, and you don't receive it, but someone else does. And Paul says, we still rejoice with them because they rejoice. We're one body. It's not about you specifically. It's about what the body is going through. And so if one in the body rejoices, even if it causes you grief or if it's at your expense, we are to rejoice with them. On the other side of that, then we have the weeping side, and it means that we feel the pain, the anguish, the grief, the hurt of other people. Now, unfortunately, especially in this modern age, I think, we see the pain, the grief, the suffering of people reported all the time. You turn on the news, it's all negative. We see the wars. We see people being killed. We see people being kidnapped, put, taken as hostages, people being injured. And so because we're exposed to it so often, we kind of become steeled against it in a way because I don't want to keep thinking about that all the time. If you're around people that are continually suffering, sometimes it's just a natural response to kind of turn off your emotion to try to deal with it. And Paul says that's not the right response, or Peter says that's not it. We are to weep with them that weep. We are to feel that pain with them. We are to grieve with those who are truly grieving, and we are literally to suffer 
together because we are one body. Now, that's not something that comes naturally. That's a supernatural thing. And it only happens because we have that one spirit of Christ in us that binds us together in one body. Okay, people in the world who are unsaved might say, oh, I feel your grief, I feel your pain, I'm so sorry for you. Okay, that may be, but they don't feel it, they don't experience it in the same way that a believer does with another believer. And so it's not just sharing in the grieving process or sharing in the rejoicing process. It's truly a rejoicing from inside that we are happy for this other believer that they've received the blessing even though we haven't. And that's what Peter's talking about here. We are sympathetic. We feel, we share each other's feelings. We share each other's experiences. We share each other's suffering. The word, it could also be compassion. You may have some of that in your translations. Compassionate, be compassionate. Jesus described this kind of compassion when he was describing the father of the prodigal son. You think about the prodigal son and the, and the, the, the process that he went through, first rejecting his father, going his own way, squandering all of the treasure and all of his inheritance, ending up at the very bottom, living with pigs and eating their food, and then finally coming to his right mind and coming back to his father just begging just to be a servant, so he has a place to sleep and eat. And how does his father respond? Jesus used this word, compassion, sympathy, and his father ran out with open arms and hugged him and put on the best robe, fixed the best meal, and had a huge party, rejoicing that his son had come home. How is it that we act toward people who have done that to us? Believers who have used us or abused us for their own gain. And then they come back and want to make things right. Do we welcome them with open arms, rejoicing in their repentance, grieving with them over their sin? Or do we build the wall saying, you hurt me, you can't come back in? See, that's what Peter's talking about. That's the kind of compassion that Jesus talks about. He also uses the same word to describe the Good Samaritan who took care of the injured person who was his enemy, who was laying there on the road and with his own money, with his own goods, he took care of that man until he was well. That's the sympathy. And so Peter says, number one, be of the same mind, and in that same mind we are compassionate and sympathetic toward each other. Number three... He says, be loving as brothers, or love as brethren. Now, this word, love as brothers, you may recognize the word philadelphos, okay? It's uh, the word that is the root of our city, Philadelphia, the, the city of brotherly shove, right? That's the way I grew up. My brothers and I, we pr- uh, practiced the, the, pr- the principle of brotherly shove, not so much brotherly love. But Peter says, no, this is supposed to be brotherly love. Now, we've seen in the previous two virtues, both this common mind or one-mindedness and then the compassion and sympathy, that we, they are to be common because we're related. We're in the same family. 
And this is the reason why we should have brotherly love toward each other as well, because we are one family, one body. We are joined together in Christ. In chapter 2, Peter calls us a chosen generation, one chosen generation, one royal priesthood, one holy nation, one peculiar people. We are bound together as one. And in verse 10, he says, in times past, you were not a people, but now we are the people of God. God has brought us together as one. And that's the commonality that we have that kind of is the root of all of this. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, we're all baptized into one body by the same spirit. Now, remember, last week how we saw from Ephesians 5 that a husband is to love his wife as his own body. Here's that love. We're to love each other because you are, they are your body. You are not alone. No man is an island in Christianity. Your salvation is not independent for you You may have come to Christ independently, but once you are saved, you are made part of something bigger than yourself. And so we are one body. And so Jesus says, and Peter's talking about Jesus' command, repeating Jesus' command, that we are to love one another as one body. Jesus said that in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. There's the standard of love. Now, you might look at each other and go, well, I know that they're my brothers in Christ, but man, I can't stand to be around them, so I'll just hold my nose and get through Sunday, and then we can be free of each other for the rest of the week. No, that's not what Peter says. That's not what God says. Love one another. That's that relationship love. Right after Jesus gave that commandment, he said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now, I ask this question, and I think it's a challenge to all of us. What does the world see when they see how believers treat each other? Do they see that kind of love? Or do they see people who just tolerate each other? They have to get along because they're in the same church. No, this is a genuine care, concern, compassion, sympathy, feeling, the sharing of the same feelings. We, we love one another in a brotherly way. In Romans chapter 12, we read this today. Be kindly affection to one another in brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. There's what love does. It lifts up the other person. It doesn't try to jump ahead of them. It doesn't try to exalt myself over them. It doesn't try to exert my will over their will. Love prefers one another. In other words, you go first. Let's take your idea. Let's listen to what you have to say. That's love. In 1 Thessalonians 4.9, Paul says it this way, As touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And so there's the standard. As Christ has loved us, so are we to love each other. Now, I know because I grew up in a family with two brothers and a sister that siblings are not always the easiest people to love. Okay? As I said, my brothers and I practice the principle of brotherly shove quite often. 
very rarely did brotherly love manifest itself in our relationship. But God knew that brothers and sisters would have a hard time getting along. And that's why, as a child, I was put into a family with other people that annoyed me and drove me crazy so I could learn to love the hardest people on earth to love. And the same is true of the church. We're all different. We all have different interests. We all have different opinions in some cases. And we don't get along all the time. But that's why we're here. So that God can teach us to love people who are not easy to love. Because we're one family. And so Paul says, you have to practice, learn to live together in love for one another because you're the same family. And so that's the third principle. Number four, he goes on, he says, be pitiful, or the word in the Greek is tender-hearted. Tender-hearted. This is um, the only place other than Ephesians 4.32 where this word is used, tender-hearted. And Ephesians 4.32 tells us, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Now, there's an extension of that compassion and love in a practical way. If we are tender-hearted, then we look at things from other people's perspectives. We feel what they're going through. We consider their circumstances and what God is trying to do in their lives, and then we respond appropriately to their need. And if they need forgiveness, we forgive them. We don't hold the grudge. The root word of tender-hearted in the Greek actually refers to your internal organs, your guts, okay? And, and one of the verses we read this morning in Romans says, bowels of mercies, okay? The Greeks use this Greek word as a way to describe courage or bravery. That's actually where we get the phrase, oh man, that guy had guts, he had the bravery, to do something dangerous but necessary. He had the, those guts. That's the Greek thinking. The Hebrews, on the other hand, and what Peter is communicating here, is that this idea of the bowels within you are about compassion. If your bowels are filled with some other person, that means your heart is turned toward them. You feel for them. So they have this idea of your internal organs being turned in affection to someone. Now, I don't encourage husbands on Valentine's Day to write your wife a card that says, I love you with all my kidneys. Okay? I mean, you can. If your Hebrew background comes in, then you can get use that, and that'll be okay. Okay? But what, what the, the, the idea here is, it's what we would say with all my heart. To love one another with all your heart. And my heart then breaks for you when you're going through things. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul puts it this way, If there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. That word bowels means internal organs. And he's saying love, affection. And out of that flows mercy. Colossians 3, he says the same thing in verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, 
humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. And so this word, compare, uh, combined with the word we saw for sympathy and compassion, if we have sympathy and compassion, then we will be tender-hearted. Our bowels, our heart, will be moved for people. And that's what Peter's talking about. And if our heart is moved, then we will do something to help them. 1 John chapter 3 addresses this. He says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and if you shut up your bowels of compassion for him, how dwelleth the love of God in you? In other words, if you have what is necessary to meet the need of someone that you are connected with, a brother, if you feel the, the compassion toward them, if you have that sympathy, you understand their suffering, and you have the resources to help them, and you don't do it, you've just shut up your bowels of compassion. And Peter says that's not what the church should do. We are to exercise those feelings of sympathy and compassion by being tender-hearted. And tender-heartedness causes us to respond to the needs of others as we feel their needs as our own. What is our greatest need? Jesus Christ. Forgiveness for our sins, right? That's why we go to God. That's why we go to Jesus Christ for salvation. So if that is our greatest need personally, what is another's greatest need toward us? Forgiveness for the sin that they've committed against us. And so there's no room for grudges, there's no room for revenge, there's no room for anything except tenderheartedness, which yields forgiveness. And so we feel their need, we have compassion, we respond with tenderheartedness to help them in their condition. That's what Peter's saying here. That's the fourth one, number five. He says, be courteous or humble-minded. Now, there's two different Greek words used in Scripture to, to um, define or to, uh, to give us this word humble-minded or courteous, okay? The first word is philophron, which means friendly or courteous. That's the way the word is translated in the King James Version. There's another word, which is tapienophron, which means humble-mindedness. Now, both of them are different words. Different manuscripts use different words, and so your Bible may say humble-minded. Some Bibles say courteous, but both of them are correct because being courteous or friendly is the outward conduct of a person who is humble-minded. In other words, we are courteous because we value other people above ourselves. We think about how what we do affects them. That's the basis of courteous. We don't want to offend them, so we think twice before we say or do something. Philippians chapter 2, Paul said this, be, Let this mind be, itch, be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There's our example. So the example of humble-mindedness is a highly exalted Lord who lowered himself and humbled himself to become a servant. And that's what we are to do. It doesn't matter whether you are an authority over someone or have a position over someone else. 
In humble-mindedness, we are to lower ourselves so that we can meet their needs. That's what Jesus did for us. Even though Jesus was God, he didn't use his position or power to get what he wanted for himself. He actually used his position and power to give us what we needed. And he emptied himself of all of his own prerogatives so that he could do that. That's exactly what humble-mindedness is. In fact, earlier in Philippians 2, Paul says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant or more important than yourselves. There's the idea of humble-mindedness. And he says, But also look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, if you spend your whole life doing what's important for you because these are things I have to get done for me to make sure I've got my needs met and everything is covered so I'm safe, so I'm provided for, and we neglect other people, that's not humble-minded. That's selfishness. Our goal should not be about serving ourselves first and then if I have time, I'll serve other people. It's about literally serving other people first and not worrying about mine because God's going to take care of me. And if we're humble-minded about ourselves, then we will be courteous to other people. And that means we'll think about what we are going to do or what we do do, how it affects other people around us. And in some cases, just that thought alone about how is this going to affect so-and-so will keep us from doing something that otherwise would be okay. But if it offends or hurts or in any way causes somebody else to stumble then we act in courtesy and love, and we refrain. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 8. That's the whole basis of his argument about eating meat offered to idols. At the end of that chapter, he says, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In other words, your brother. For if someone sees you who, who, who has knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? He starts the chapter, he says, we all know that there's nothing wrong with the meat. We all know idols are nothing because they're false gods, but knowledge puffeth up. And so he goes on, he says, you have to consider other people. Verse 11, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren, Paul calls it a sin to act without courtesy by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. And here's his conclusion. Therefore, if my food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. That's what Paul comes down to. It's so important to me to be courteous and show love to my brother that if eating this meat causes him to stumble, I will never eat any meat again just to be on the safe side. And that's how far Christian love actually brings us. Because it's not about me. Now, the Greeks didn't prefer this term, obviously. In the Greek mindset, it communicated this idea of weakness, of strength, and self-worth. You don't have any value. You don't see yourself as anything. You're just a wimp. So they didn't like this word. And the same attitude is prevalent in today's culture because people generally live to prove themselves to everybody else. We have to show how strong we are, stand up for myself, defend myself. I'm not going to let other people trample on me. 
because I don't want to be seen as a weak person. How did Jesus respond? He said not a word. He let them crucify him. And we've seen in everything that Peter's given us in chapter 2 and chapter 3, that's the response of submissiveness. And so the Bible teaches us that we don't need to stand up for ourselves and prove our worth. God knows our worth. God knows what we are. God will fight for us. We don't need to defend ourselves and show people that we are, you know, I am, I am strong, I can do this. No, we show ourselves strong by trusting in God. That's where real strength lies. In Luke chapter 14, verse 11, Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself shall be abased, pushed down. He that humbleth himself, he's the one that's exalted. Let God do the exalting of yourself. Let God show how strong of a person you are through him. Let God lift you up, not yourself. James chapter 4, verse 6, God gives more grace. Wherefore, he said, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know the blessings of life? Be humble-minded. And Peter echoes the same idea later on here in chapter 5, and he says, Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so humble-mindedness is the attitude by which we are able to live toward each other and respond to each other in love. Now, very quickly, in verse 9, he bounces off of verse 8, and then he says, here's how we're supposed to live in verse 8 toward other believers. What about unbelievers? And he begins with this phrase, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. In other words, if somebody acts like an unbeliever, they may be a believer, but if they act like an unbeliever, they curse you, they mock you, they persecute you. He says, don't render evil for evil. For evil. And railing for railing. The word railing there is cursing or insulting. In other words, if somebody insults you, you don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to oppose them. If somebody comes after to attack you, let God take care of it. Now, in the world that Peter grew up in again, both the Greeks who had to stand for themselves and the Jews who lived by the law. And remember, in the Old Testament law, God said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The, the, the judgment will fit the crime. What you uh, offend against someone else will be offended against you. But when Jesus came to earth, what did he say? You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person or fight against them. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now that doesn't go over well, even in Christian circles, because we're taught as part of our culture, defend yourself, right? What did Jesus say? Turn the other cheek. He goes on, if anyone wants to sue you, and take your shirt, give him your coat also. Give him even more than what they ask for. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you, regardless of who they are. Now, we think of the golden rule, okay? 
as kids, again, in the idea of brotherly shove, we were treat one another as they treat us. And that's the way most of the world lives. Treat each other as they treat us. They hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Okay, Jesus gave us the golden rule, and he said, no, you're to treat others as you would want to be treated. And that's just the basic bottom line of courtesy. Treat others as you would want to be treated. But he doesn't limit that. It's not treat those who are nice to you so they'll be nice to you. Okay? It is treat everyone the way you want to be treated. Even those people that curse you and slap you and want to sue you, treat them the way you'd want to be treated. In the same passage in Luke 6, he says, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. Lend, hoping for nothing in return. Is it your stuff? No, it's God's. He's given you that to be stewards over, and if you lend, you let God take care of it. He goes, hoping for nothing in return, let, and your reward shall be great. You shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Does God keep the rain from unbelievers' farms and only rain on believers' farms? When the unbelievers go into the grocery store, are all the shelves locked for them because they don't get the blessing of God? God is gracious and kind to everyone. See, that's all the more motivation that they would come to him for salvation. And so we are to be that way as well. And remember, everything that Peter has given us is in the context of suffering at the hand of other people. And so this is how we are supposed to respond. Render not evil for evil, he says. And so when all of the authorities and other people in your life are attacking you, what is the right response? In submission... You bless them. That's what Peter says. Look at the next word in verse 9. Contrary-wise, I mean, it means on the contrary. Bless them. Don't curse them back. Don't attack them back. Bless them. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43, You have heard that it hath been said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And I found that it's really really difficult to stay mad at someone that I have to pray for. And I'm not praying, Lord, strike them down because they deserve it. That's not the prayer. The prayer is, Lord, bless them. Lord, encourage them. Lord, show your goodness to them. Isn't that what Jesus did for those who crucified him? As they were putting him on the cross, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What is people's greatest need? Well, in the human culture, in our mind, we go, well, to be put in their place. They need to be put in their place. They need a taste of their own medicine. No, their greatest need is to be forgiven. Experience grace. And God has saved us so that his forgiveness and grace can come through us to other people. So not render evil for evil, but bless them. What greater blessing could you give to somebody than through you, God brings them to Jesus Christ? That's the greatest blessing you could ever give. And in fact, at the end of verse 9, Peter says that is what we have been called to, to bless other people. That's the purpose for our salvation. 
In 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25, he says, For this to you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. Bless other people as you suffer. See, God wants to use us through the grace and mercy that he's given us to bestow grace and mercy to other people because they're watching. And through us, we might bring them to Christ. We saw that with an ungodly husband and a godly wife. We saw that with an ungodly workplace authority, an ungodly government. We could bring people to Christ literally through our testimony, not of our words, but of the grace and mercy that flows through us to them. I don't have time to exposit verses 10 through 12, but very quickly as we close, let me just show you what it is. It's a quotation from Psalm 34. And what Peter's saying is, if you want to love your life, if you want to have a long life, a long, good life, here's the pattern that you're to follow. Number one, render not evil for evil. Number two, do not speak evil against anyone. Don't try to deceive them about your true intentions. Turn away from evil responses and do good to them instead. As much as it is up to you, always seek a peaceful resolution. Not conflict, but peace. Why? Because God is watching and listening. God knows exactly what you're going through. He knows all of your suffering that you're being put through at the hand of other people. He is not unaware of that. He's allowed it for a purpose. And the purpose is for you to show through that suffering his grace and mercy. He hears every prayer you utter unless you're not living in submission. Remember verse 7, if a husband does not treat his wife in an honoring way, his prayers will not be heard. And it's the same for us. If we do not live in submission, in grace, and mercy toward other people, it interferes with our prayers to God. What Peter did not include in this psalm are the next three verses, which go like this. The righteous cry, the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh to them that are of a broken and contrite heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. There's that humility. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers us out of them all. God's not going to leave you in suffering. He may deliver you on this earth, but he may choose to wait until you get to heaven. But the point is, he will deliver you. And so as we go through it, it is our job to be faithful, not to render evil for evil, but to bless even those that are persecuting us with the grace and mercy that we've experienced from the Lord. You don't have to fight for yourself. You don't have to stand up for yourself. God will do that. He's promised to do that. He's promised to be close to the humble. He's promised to save those whose lives are lived in submission to him. There's not a single event or circumstance that God cannot or will not deliver you from or through. 
And so we trust him in faith, living, and submission. And so the only thing we need to be concerned about is whether we're living in the submission and humility that defined Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do? How did he live? That is what we've been called to. Live as Jesus lived. Respond as Jesus responded. Walk as Jesus walked. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of man, and being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross for us. And that is how we are submissive to other people, regardless of who they might be. Christ is the model. You want to know what our lives are supposed to look at or look like? Look at Jesus. That's all we need to know. Let's pray. Father, again, we are challenged by your word, and Lord, it's impossible for us to do this in our own strength. We can't because we've tried and failed so many times. Our life is a pattern of failure, and yet in that failure, Lord, you've still bestowed grace and mercy upon us. You've forgiven us for our sins as we've come to you asking and confessing them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the same compassion, the same sympathy, the same brotherly love for each other, the same grace and mercy toward other people because that's what you've called us to, to live in that model of grace and mercy that you live so that people will see God in us and not just another good person, that they might be drawn to you and come to know you as Savior. Lord, that's what it's all about. So help us not to forget that. Thank you again for this truth today. May you ingrain it upon our hearts so that we become new people with a new way, walking according to, to your way in faithfulness, giving you the glory. And we pray this with your help. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen.